0: In Dawn, book one of Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis series, the story begins with the extraterrestrial Owen Collies rescuing the last survivors of a ruined Earth. Their very, very long-term goal is to literally plant these humans back on a healed but vacant Earth to grow a newly resilient hybrid civilization. In the initial stages of Butler's extraordinary three-book long tale, the returned earthlings face an incredibly daunting existential question. How do we work together to sustain ourselves in this raw and perilous landscape? As they say, it's a steep learning curve, and at least at first, it doesn't go well. Dawn was published in 1987. Unfortunately, here on Earth... In 2022, the human race is facing the exact same question, and the path to understanding appears no less steep or urgent. Now, I'm a believer in the exponential power of the hyperlocal. Over and over, I have seen how small gardens of effort and ideas have provided insights and momentum that have been useful, even transformational, in the wider world. Don't get me wrong. I'm fully aware that small-town miracles will not provide all the answers we need to successfully address our growing earthling dilemmas. But there are enough real-world hyper-local stories out there that not only give me hope, but more importantly, can teach and remind us what we need to know to survive and thrive on this planet. One of those stories is being told by this episode's guest, Carlton Turner. Now, Carlton will be the first to remind you that the inspiring stories he shares about community creativity and meaningful change in small places, including his hometown, Utica, Mississippi, are by definition and necessity intensely collective efforts. So, in deference to him, let me start the show by saying that Carlton is not the hero of the story you are about to hear, but he's a great storyteller. And that's as good a place as any to begin the beginning. This is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and community transformation. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, music and math. Good morning to you, Carlton. Good morning. How are you faring this fine day? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good, yeah. Welcome to the show, Carlton. Where are you hailing from? this morning.
1: I am calling from Utica, uh, Mississippi, which is the ancestral land of the Choctaw, the Quapaw, which is also known as the Chickasaw, and the Natchez people. And also in the state you have the the Yazoo and the Biloxi. Yazoo is up in the Delta area and the Biloxi, of course, is down on the coast. The name Utica actually was given to this community by people who came here from Utica, New York. And the original name of the town was Cane Ridge.
0: And my part of this conversation is originating from Alameda, California, which is located on the unceded homelands of the Chochenyo people, of the Muwekema Ohlone tribe. So let me begin where we always begin on the show by asking you how you describe your work in the world, not your job description, but your life's path. Simple question.
1: Well, sometimes it depends on who I'm talking to. Having to work across multiple worlds, there's always translation that takes place, but If we're speaking technically, I I refer to the work as comprehensive community cultural development. If I'm just speaking plainly, (laughs) uh, then what I mean by that is that work is about centering culture, the people's history, their stories, their way of life, their joys, uh, their faith, as a holistic entry point to a conversation about community change. Really looking at what is our community, embracing and understanding what our community is today, what it has been in the past and thinking about what, it, what we want it to be in the future, and then beginning to use those three positions as a way of understanding our growth, our progress, and our aspirations.
0: So there's a lot of roles and hats and ideas woven through what you just described. Community, culture, development, change. How did you come to this work?
1: Yeah, how much time do we have?
0: All the time you need.
1: Yeah, it's a long story. I'll try to keep it to the most important parts. I am the son of Genevia Turner and Emmett Turner. My father was from Harlem. His folks traveled to New York from the Carolinas. He was a first-generation Harlemite. My mother, Genevia Turner, whose maiden name is Genevia Roberts, is from uh, this community that I live in. Her family's been here for eight generations. And so my mother left Utica to go to work in New York and met my father. And they got married there and lived there for a few years. I was actually born in Mount Vernon alongside my brother, Maurice, who you've met. And then we moved back to my mother's home community uh, when I was about two years old. And it's been all Mississippi ever since, except for the, the cultural transplants that my father brought with him from Harlem. He never stopped being Harlem, and so he was just really Harlem in Mississippi, and that really gave us a really deep and rich cultural background. We had the regular cultural aspects of living in Mississippi, which were, from a cultural standpoint, they were the storytelling, they were the music of the blues, the gospel, the that soul music and and then we had our father who grew up during the 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 jazz era uh, in harlem and brought all of that music to the south so that's the foundational elements and then i went to school at the university of mississippi otherwise known as old miss on a scholarship to work with the athletic department i would not have gone if it had not been free i don't know if i had gone to college if it wasn't free. My my, my parents insisted that I go to college, but I ended up going to University of Mississippi because they offered me a full-ride scholarship. Probably some of the most important lessons of my life I learned there, I think about my time at the university as being the place where I learned and earned my degree in in understanding systemic institutional racism, seeing what it looks like in practice at, at an institutional level. And while there, my brother was also there, and we began to think about the assets that he had, he's a musician, a composer, he was working and training in music production at the university, and I was an English major. And we began in college writing music and really asking questions about the state of the world and um, what we were seeing and experiencing both there at the University of Mississippi, but also in the larger context of what was happening around the country. This was in the early 90s, early and mid 90s. So this the world was changing as we were coming into adulthood and, and what was happening with black men, gangster rap. And. Just uh, hip hop was the, was really the, the genre that was beginning to, uh, be the most important and influential popular culture, not just in America, but worldwide. And so it was really shifting the dynamics for the representation and identity of black men on a global scale, specifically black Americans. Life to the children of this world, life to the mothers and the little teenage girls, life to the little boys who grew up all alone, depth to the who decided to leave home, depth to the television raising my kids to grace my kids, selling their soul for the highest fit, life to the hope that we all become one, death to the makers of the gun, life to the sun. To the sellers of the drug, like to the butterflies, bumblebees, bridge lady bugs, depth to the simple bring of death, right to the earth on which you stand, depth to the clan, depth to the killers of the slam, depth to the self-righteous man, right to the master's plan, right to give in the helping hand from life to death. And so that kind of became uh, this place where we found the music and we found a style and a rhythm and began to hone it and what eventually brought us back to to the Jackson, Mississippi area. Utica is about 30 minutes from Jackson so Jackson has always been one of the places where as young artists we we really had a home there and that home was filled with people like Jalavet Anderson who's was a poet who worked with Bob Moses uh, at the Algebra Project and we ended up working at The school that Bob was working at, working on a kind of companion project called My Mississippi Eyes, which was founded by Jalabet Anderson. And so we worked with students doing reading literacy work. That work introduced us to everybody because Bob knew everybody. Everybody knew Bob.
0: Wow. What an amazing opportunity. Bob Moses was a force of nature, as I understand it. Uh, A legend as an organizer and as an educator and that Algebra Project had a really unique perspective, right? The power of math and the future of democracy.
1: He leveraged his celebrity to really advance uh, a lot of ideas about freedom in Mississippi, but specifically freedom in the 21st century, which he looked at as being both the right to vote and, and what the digital and mathematics unlocks in terms of this informational age.
2: There's an inextricable link between the denial of the right to vote for African-Americans and sharecropper education. And the link was on full display when John Doe put me on the witness stand in Greenville, Mississippi in the spring of 1963. And the courtroom was packed with sharecroppers from Greenwood and the federal district judge Clayton just had one question why is SNCC taking illiterates down to register to vote? So at the heart of that matter was sharecropper education. Uh, And that's an education which says you are pre-assigned work and so therefore you get at best an education for the work which you've been pre-assigned. Now the problem in the country is that sharecropper education has caught up with the whole country in the sense that over 90% of the students in the country get an education geared to 20th century technology, industrial technology, and a very small percentage are getting the education required for information age technology.
0: So that was Bob Moses talking about math literacy as a civil right at the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics Conference last year.
1: He saw that as the, the real citizenship of the 21st century. We met people like Hollis Watkins and Danny Glover and all the civil rights legends, C.C. Bryant, and all the people that just came through uh, the space while we were just beginning to hone our understanding of what the work of artists that were lending their talents and their crafts and their creativity to community commons. And that was a different type of trajectory towards artistic success than the one that I think we envisioned when we started writing music in college. And a lot of that was attributed to our introduction to Alternate Roots through Carolyn Morris, who was then at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And of course, the story just explodes from that point. In 2001, when we met Carolyn, she introduced us to the folks in New Orleans and that was John O'Neill and M.K. Wegman and Kathy Randles and Jose Torres-Tama and just all of these amazing folks. Jim Randall's students at the center, Kalamu Yasalam, Carol B. Bell at Aisha. And it exploded our understanding of what the work meant, what culture meant in a community that was rooted in culture. And, and then just Alternate Roots just embraced us as artists and as, as Mississippians, as Black men. And the relationships, they just began to double time. Alice Lovelace. Naya Watkins, who also had relationships in Mississippi and New Orleans, Kathy denabroga, Bob Leonard, Linda Paris Bailey.
0: If I could just break in here to point out that the lineup of folks you just mentioned is, an, um, is amazing. It's like an all-star team for the community arts movement of the time. So you mentioned your time at Old Miss provided a, a primer on institutional oppression, but it sounds like the period you're describing was a kind of a sidewalk university for community cultural organizing.
1: It's a lot of folks on that list that influenced our understanding of our work and exposed us to this this national community of artists who were doing work similar to the work that we had begun really digging into. So that's, I would say that's the shortest version I think I could share in this time. From there, Roots really just opened the space to possibility. And we, I, I feel like I'm still on that possibility train that was open through that organization.
0: Part two, alternate routes and Maps. So, You mentioned alternate roots, which most of those people you were talking about were a big part of and that you went on to lead for nine years or so. And during that time, roots evolved from serving artists who were working for equity and social change to working really directly with communities and artists to advance community issues on the ground. Could you talk about how that evolution happened and what informed it?
1: Yeah, I I would extend that idea to say, not just the advancement of communities, but the advancement of civilization. When I think about culture, I don't think about performance. I think about civilization. I think about what does it mean for a, a people, a society? What is their way of life? and what are the values that define that and ground that way of life and and how those values identify what our culture will be remembered for. We look back on cultures that were, that are long gone or cultures that existed in in a time before and we remember the aspects of that culture that were, that have been the most influential, the ones that have been the biggest in their presentation. We think about them in ways that are defining. And when we think about our culture, I think one of the things that, that, The future will say about our culture the one that we presently live in is how commodified it is that everything is for sale everything is a commodity and so i think in that practice is where we find art the idea of art comes from this commodification of culture art is just art is one a natural byproduct of a strong cultural community. It's culture is going to produce art. It 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 can't do it. It can't exist any other way. It's it's like water and heat are going to make steam. That's just when you have culture, art is going to be produced. But the way that we think about art is as a product. It is and the culture is the thing that stands in the way between the art and the commerce. And so I think the people that that have influenced me, the people that I've been grounded my work in saw culture as the really as the, the the development of a culture that is rich as a d- redefining of what wealth is and for me that's been that's been really the 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 broadest stroke of the mission that we've painted here with the Mississippi Center for Cultural Production is that we're trying to work with our community to redefine wealth like redefine what it means to have wealth what is the wealth that we have and how can we begin to then re associate the outer world, re get, them, get that outer world in alignment with the way that we think about what's valuable and what's precious to us. And I think that's where I come from in this work.
0: If you don't mind, I'd like to quote you on something that relates to this idea of redefining culture. This comes from a talk you made at the Culture Shift Conference in St. Louis in 2016 that we're both a part of. You were talking about how our commodified culture also distorts the role of the artist. You said, the idea that any artist can think of their creation separate from a community's cultural and political context is delusional. And then you talked about a much older way of thinking about artists, which was the role of the culture bearer. Could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, so first I want to give give acknowledgement to uh, Lori Poirier, who's the president of First Peoples Fund and my sister, and one of the biggest influences on my work of the last decade. I'm a proud board member of First Peoples Fund and a proud collaborator with Lori on a number of projects, uh, most notably the Intercultural Leadership Institute. But she taught me the word culture bearers. And it's a word that when you hear it in, in the field today, it's I attribute that to, to Lori in the work of First Peoples Fund because she has normalized the idea of culture bearers as being held alongside what we traditionally think of as artists. But there's a difference in those two identities, but they should be, both should be regarded and supported. And I think that work is due to, to Lori. And what I learned in in my time with First Peoples Fund is this idea of collective spirit. And it's an idea that they take into all of their work as an organization, as representative of tribal nations, representatives of sovereign people, and recognizing the role that the culture bearer plays in the advancement of a culture, the advancement of a community. To me, the culture bearer's role is to make sure that culture is transferred from generation to generation. That culture will always change, and change is is inevitable. But the holding of that position is a way to remember and honor the sacred, honor the the beginnings, honor the traditions, without moving into a place of nostalgia, but in a place of, of deep connection. Nostalgia is, oh, I remember that, that was so wonderful. And then that's a fleeting emotion but this idea of accountability to your ancestors and to a path that they have set forth with you in mind, like they, this is envisioned for you. This, we created these things because we knew that you would need them because what you're going to experience is going to be is a continuation of the experience that we have been having as humans on this planet. And so that accountability comes in that if the work that we're doing as organizations, as culture workers, as activists, however you identify yourself, but if you're fitting in this framework of what we think about when we say organizations like Alternate Roots and and organizations like yours and Mississippi Center for Cultural Productions and others, then the, if the work isn't grounded in the community, it, then it's self-aggrandizing. It's not, it's not grounded in, in, in purpose other than ego. And for me, that accountability measure comes into play when the community calls you out and and checks you to say hey now you say that you're doing this on behalf of us so where is my place in it how do i fit how do my ideas fit into this idea that you're bringing or this idea that you're cultivating or this space that you're creating where do i fit inside of that and if there's no place for for a community member then whatever the thing that you've designed or you've created needs to be adjusted or abandoned
0: I couldn't agree more. You know, my own experience working with people in communities and institutions has taught me that one way or another, the questions you just shared are almost always going to be in the room. And whether or not they're given their due, they will be lurking until they're addressed. And I think those questions are just a healthy reaction of a community asking after its own self-interest. And as you say, insisting on accountability from their partners. So I've always said that Art making is a process of inquiry and that most creative journeys start with questions like that. I think these questions serve as a kind of North Star and that being accountable to yourself and your partners, if you have them, for the answers is part of what steers the work. So I'm wondering in your journey from college and making music to community change, how that process of creative inquiry has informed your work.
1: Yeah, I think in college with my brother, older brother, about 13 months, he began asking me questions as a 20 year old, questions that I I wasn't ready to start asking. I was 20 years old in college and I'm not thinking about the social ills of the world and what my responsibility to them are. And my brother began to to ask those questions of me, to ask my opinion on, on what was happening in the world and how do you feel about that? And then are you content? with the setup. Are you good with this? Is this cool? Is, is like the way that this thing is that good with you? And I feel like I've been following that thread of inquiry my for the, the next 27 years of my life. Like to today, I've been following that thread of, of, of line of questioning about what is happening and am I content with the way that it, 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 it is set up right now. So I, I believe that when we, we left college and we began working alongside people like Jalavet and Celie McInnes and and Bob Moses and Hollis Watkins and others, we began to be exposed to a community that was also asking this same question. They weren't, but they had already moved on from the idea of if they were content, they were clear that they were not content (laughs) and they were now putting into practice ways to to change circumstances to rewrite the future. And the way that I think about it is about the work that we're doing today manifest in future vibrations and and things begin to shift. I, the way that I understand it, it's going to take 20 years for uh, the type of generational change that our work is working towards to, to be manifested. And you see a lot of smaller change in the interim, but the generational change, then you can look back 20 years and say, yes, this is where we started, and this is where we are today, and see the, the kind of monumental movement that has taken place.
0: I'm just thinking about how we live in an increasingly impatient world. And I was wondering, how did your Roots experience shape your understanding of the nature of social change and the difference between short-term change and generational transformation?
1: So I think Roots helped me to really understand that. Understanding the organizational trajectory of an organization like Roots that was founded in 1976, I came to it in, in 2001, 25 years later, And in in organizational development standards, it was a 25-year-old organization, but it had really just become an adolescent. If you think about age range and over the next 20 years of my involvement from 2001 to now 2022, the organization has moved into adulthood. And to see the impact of, of that organization on the region, on the nation, on the national conversation about arts, culture, and social has helped me understand what it means to do this work for not just for a moment or for a project, but for a commitment of one's life. And I remember learning some of these things and sitting with people who were there at the beginning. So sitting with Bob Leonard and Kathy Denabraga and Joe Carson to hear what the intentions were and understand that that there was an embryo of an idea that, just continued to grow and develop that was being nurtured, that was being provided sustenance, that was given as much warmth and, and love and care as it could, and all of the strife that comes along with trying to do this work in an integrated community, in a multidisciplinary community, in an intergenerational community, in uh, a, a multicultural community over time. And so those lessons are the lessons that I tapped into as we began to develop this idea for the Mississippi Center for Cultural Production.
0: Part three, a grandfather story. So am I right that the center, that sip culture is kind of a return to the future for you, that the Utica area is where you were raised, and you have transitioned from helping build an organization with regional and national impact to a long-term initiative focused really on changing the story in this one community.
1: So just a little bit of background. So my family has been in this community for as long as I imagine the descendants of Africans have been in this community. And I, I say it in in that framework because we can trace our history back so far and then you lose track because you just don't know. But my people have been here for a very long time. This community, when I grew up as a child, when my grandfather was living, when I would go to my grandparents' house, everything that we ate came from the yard, literally. They raised chickens, they raised pigs, they raised cows, they milked the cows, they made their own butter, they had their own milk. Eggs, the whole nine. Smokehouse, so they made their own bacon and ham. It was country living at its finest. And that wasn't an anomaly. And I'm 47, so that would be in the 70s and and 80s. People were um, self-sustained at some level. People owned land, they farmed, they grew their own food. People didn't have outrageous bills and debt. They really lived by the means that were provided to them through their environment until they couldn't which is a whole nother story, but we're not gonna get into that right now. But as I grew older, as I remember these abrupt moments, when my grandfather died, I was 13, all of a sudden our food table changed because our grandfather, he raised so much food. He also was a, a hunter and gatherer, so he would go and bring back deers and squirrels and rabbits. So it was always an abundance of, and a variety of delicious food, nutritious food, healthy, wild and organic food and when he passed everybody else had full-time jobs so like now we're just eating whatever we can get out of the grocery store and that wasn't just our uh, reality it was a generational reality as the elders died off or got too old to, to carry on and practice those other ways of life we all resorted to this commercialized food production. Fast forward to this same community that produced 80 percent of its own food just a mere 30 years ago. Now in 2014, the grocery store closes and now you either have to drive 20 miles one way to get to a a grocery store or you go to the Dollar General and get whatever frozen food section they have there or the the small section of, of fresh produce, which is like bananas, onions, and apples, so very narrow selection. But that has become the reality of a community that was based in agriculture. We're not talking about a desert and, and, you know that can't grow food, we're talking about some of the most rich and fertile land in the country, the Mississippi Delta. And this community now struggles daily to find quality food. So that has an impact on all aspects of our lives, health and wellness, education, the medical industry, transportation, everything, commerce, the whole nine. So when we came back, I knew that my time at Roots was going to come to an end because the organization needs something different to continue to iterate on itself. It's not an organization that's going to have the same director for 30 years. So I knew that my time was coming to an end there and I wanted to return to my home and do the work that I have been helping to do in other people's communities and, and being a part of but also I've been learning from and being witness to the the different and variety of approaches that people have taken all across the country to impact and affect their own community's trajectory.
0: So during your time at Roots, I know you created a pretty comprehensive approach to community cultural development. Did you apply some of those strategies uh, for your work with the Utica
1: community? So we started with a set of questions. We gathered our community and we put maps on the walls. And we asked them, we said, we want you to map four locations. Map where you live, where you work, where you worship, and where you shop. And on the map, everything went from Utica and went out like this, and all these lines away from Utica. And the conversation that came after that mapping exercise, with that conversation came the reality that our community had gone from a center of cultural production to a bedroom community and just like my brother asked me are you content with that are you cool with the setup are you cool with driving 40 miles round trip to to get flour and meal and whatever the things are that you need are you cool with there being no localized food production or access to 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 fresh food in the community are you cool with that if that's cool then it's cool you know what i'm saying but if it's not then where do we want to be as a community? And let's begin to dream and imagine what that place is and then begin to map a trajectory there. So this idea that we're thinking about this on a 20 year trajectory. So we're thinking about this as a generational process. So we're just now uh, completing five years in February. We still got 15 years left to just even be able to, to understand if this initial path that we set out on will will bear fruit. That's where we are. And so in in that ways, the work of Mississippi Center for Cultural Production is a direct descendant of the work of Alternate Roots. It's a direct descendant of the work of the Highlander Center, a direct descendant of Apple Shop. It's a direct descendant of Ashe Cultural Arts Center. It's a direct descendant of Carpetbag Theater. And it's a direct descendant of Double Edge Theater. It's a direct descendant of Fannie Lou Hamer's Pig Farm. All of these influences and places, we're developing these structures that that allow for our community to participate in, bear witness to, and be the prime beneficiary of community development frameworks that are about developing our community and not just the built structures, but also the people. The heart and soul, the culture, the identity, the practices, the, the things that we take joy in, how we think about our faith, how we have discussions and conversations. So that's, I think that's how those two things go together.
0: Part four, more than a greenhouse. So you're in year five with a 20-year horizon, and in that short time you've done a lot. You have a farm growing food. You have resident artists in the community and across the region. You have a farm apprenticeship program. You're doing community research and cultural events. And it's my understanding that there's an interesting new building rising up in Utica, a greenhouse that will take food production to another level. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so the greenhouse is up. It's not running. So there's another story. So this community, when I gave you some of the backdrop, I just talked about like the people of Utica, but the institutions of Utica is really important as well. So in 1903, uh, a gentleman by the name of William Holesclaw came to this community as a student of Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver and W.B. Du Bois at Tuskegee Institute. He was a graduate there. He came to Utica. I think he said he had $2 in his pocket riding a bicycle and he founded the Utica Normal and Industrial Institute. And what that institute is and was, it was basically a Little Tuskegee. It was meant to create a space within the community for cultural production, agriculture, and other cultural artifacts to be the the basis of economic development and social development for a Black community. And so that school basically became uh, it's a historically black college and university. It is still around, although very different than what it used to be. But it became the institution that supported the development of black people in this community. So if you were anybody in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you didn't do anything in this tri county area without coming through Utica. Black people didn't. It was this, this institute, the Utica Normal Institute, that was founded by a black man for black people. So it was developing educators and it was developing farmers. And I get this part. Most of the, the fundraising to keep this thing sustained came from a group of singers called the Jubilee Singers. So Fiske had the Jubilee Singers, but Utica also had the Jubilee Singers, and they would travel all around the country. They had five teams that would travel, and they'd be on the radio in New York and in different places, and it would just bring donations back to our community in order to sustain the school. Free, oh, way down myself, so this idea of artistic practice, agricultural production, education going together hand-in-hand to do community development is not a new, this SIP culture is not a new idea, it's not a new framework. But it builds on that legacy of this Utica Normal and Industrial Institute and the work of William Holesclaw. The reason the greenhouse sparked this story is because we're currently using the greenhouse on the campus of Heinz Community College. Utica campus, which is what that school is called now, and we're in the process of getting ours wired. So it's been built, it's up, but we're we're having to wire it because it's it's fully automated, run on temperature control. It will run irrigation systems all through Wi-Fi, and it'll it's going to really support the development of our work in a, at a different level and provide both our starter plants and help us keep our year-round food production on the 17 acres but also provide starter plants for the community as well and other farmers that are interested in organic growing. But that's part of our Sip culture community farm, so we do a training program for, for young people, when young is relative, but people who are young to farming, and we do a training program to teach them sustainable and regenerative agricultural production small scale. When we talk about small scale, we're talking about permanent raised rows, not industrial or commercial farming in which you're using tractors to plant and to harvest. Ninety percent of what it's done is done without any power other than human power, so we use hand tools, cultivators, all those things to, to make it work. And so it's just a different way of, of thinking about growing all organic, all healthy food. So, That's where the the greenhouse is, and that's where that, that program, that agricultural program, stands.
0: You know, when we use the term organic these days, it brings to mind farming, you know, and healthy food. But what you're up to is kind of a revival of an organic way of being in the world, not just for the growing part, but the ways people interact with each other, and the land, and the stories, and the songs, and the celebration that get cultivated It brings to mind that picture of your grandfather, not so very long ago, getting up every day, tending to his crops and animals, providing all that bounty, that healthy sustenance, taking care of his loved ones with what the land provided. You're so right. On one hand, it seems that the work you're doing is revolutionary, but on the other, it's very old school, very organic. It's an inspiring story, an inspiring culture that has been passed down that everybody, it seems, in Utica and elsewhere can learn from.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, I grew up, my mother was a chef. She taught culinary arts. She also was a grower, so she's She's a hobby grower these days, but she's been going to the garden since she was five years old, to the field, in fact to chop cotton at five years old and never lost this desire to participate in, in, in growing. And so I think about hers as the basis of my inspiration and as the, the that next iteration of my grandfather's legacy. She also is a 40-year retired educator. And she went to Utica Normal Industrial Institute when it was Utica Junior College. So those ideas of educator and agriculturalist, those things, to me, my mother really represents. She never lost her fervor or desire to till the land and to engage in the production of her own food and knew her responsibility to be part of a generational development for our community from an educator standpoint. For me, food and art are they inextricably linked. I, I don't know that I've had a good art experience that didn't in some way connect back to food. Even if it's going out and seeing an amazing production, what follows that is food and drinks. And then that's when you get a chance to unpack and talk about and critique and really understand the emotions that you were having from this moment, from this performance, from this engagement, how did they compare to the emotions that your friend was having or your partner was having or your children were having? And and so this idea of, in my mind, historically, all art was, it was for a purpose. It was for some type of gathering. It was either a birth or a death or a marriage or a visitor or there was something that was happening that brought people together in these communal settings to engage in food and libations, conversations. And really, to me, that's culture. And what is produced out of that is dance and music and storytelling, the artifacts, the things that now have been extracted from those processes and become the things that get sold as products were just the natural expressions of culture in a healthy and fully functional community. So I don't see a division between food and and, and art. They're one and the same. One one is a precipice for the other, and they go vice versa. So I think this idea that when people struggle to see the connection between agriculture and, first of all, It's agriculture. It's culture is embedded in the name. I don't know how many other areas or sectors have culture in the name. We are agriculture. That's In my mind, the first performances happened after we found ways to settle in a place and cultivate the land and, and work the land into ways in which it was a reciprocal relationship.
0: Yeah, I mean, culture, the word... And the practice is, at its root, all about making a fertile place for growing something. The preparation, the tending, the care. That's right. It's a beautiful thing that fertile fields and fertile imaginations are siblings. It really doesn't make sense to try to separate the two.
1: It doesn't. So this idea of growing food and, and artistic practice is, to me, it's an extension of, the, of each other.
0: It's kind of like you and your brother. Food ways and art ways, life and stories. All connected. That's right. So art making is really a big part of SIP culture. You've made major commitment to embedding artists, integrating artists deeply into this work. You have artists engaged locally, and you also have artists going out into other communities. Could you talk about how that works
1: yeah. So, so we started a program in 2020, which probably was the worst year to ever start a program. But we started a program called the Rural Performance Production Lab. It's called Ripple. And it's based on this idea that I think about my work and I think about much of the story that we share today about, you know, as we grew as artists, the places that helped to cultivate our artistic creativity were all cities. We would get invited to Atlanta, or to San Antonio or New Orleans, these metropolitan areas to develop our work. And while we're deeply appreciative of that and really love it, we also wonder why those types of infrastructures don't exist in rural places. And so we were thinking about rural communities and rural artists and how can we create a space within our small infrastructure to support rural artists in the development of rural stories and doing that in a rural setting. I wonder what happened, how much of the urban space impacted my own artistic voice as my work being developed in those spaces, even though I was telling the only stories that I knew, which were my stories, how did that channel, that vehicle that it came through, how did it impact the end result of the story? So we wanted to provide a space for rural artists to tell rural stories in a rural setting that was welcoming and and resembled home. So that's the Rural Performance Production Lab. And the way that we think about that is we call it Ripple because we want this change in national narrative about the South, about people of color, about rule, to be informed by the work that we are doing here in Utica. The second way that we, we're working with artists is through we, we're partnering with an organization called The Office to do a program called Artists at Work, which is inspired by the WPA program.
0: Right. So so. That was the WPA, the Works Progress Administration Federal Employment Program during the Depression that hired thousands of artists all across the country to paint murals, collect community stories, compose music, make plays, design buildings, all
1: that. Yeah. And so we have two artists that we're working with. The, the first artist we're working with is an artist named Monica Hill. And Monica is a fabric and textile artists, and they will be working with the Utica Museum, which is at, which is on the campus of the Utica Institute, or the Heinz Community College Utica campus, to do story uh, collecting with the community over the course of the next year. And so they'll be working probably three four days a week on the campus down there and setting up oral histories. The second project is an artist named Daniel Johnson, and Daniel will be working with the Jackson Heinz Comprehensive Health Center, and their work really will be about establishing an arts desk within the clinic to be able to help people see health and wellness beyond just the medical intervention and into cultural and and food interventions as well. Again, these are artists that are being paid. They're on salary. They'll be working doing their artwork. That's their job is to do their artwork. But in both of those cases, they're helping to advance a critical community directive that we have here at the center, but also that our community is is very dedicated to.
0: So this sounds like some of the research being conducted at the Shands Medical Center Arts and Medicine Program at the University of Florida.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're doing a similar project with Imagining America out of UC Davis with Robert Wood Johnson uh, Foundation-funded interdisciplinary research project um, that we're doing and which we're looking at the role of storytelling on a community's ability to make decisions about their food structures. And so we're ending, uh, this is year three of a three-year research project. We've done, we're collecting oral histories this year, but we've done community surveys, we've done focus groups, we've done all types of community gatherings over the last couple of years. And we'll, we're finishing up our research brief this summer and we'll start putting out data in the fall. Part
0: Five. Round and round we go. So one of the traditions I know that we both have in common is the story circle. The reason I bring this up is that these elements of your work, you know, community agriculture, storytelling, community theater and music making, and the story circle all seem to rise up from an understanding that democracy is not just a political construct. It's a powerful cultural practice that, of course, needs to be practiced and practiced, which is why John O'Neill employed it in his work at the Free Southern Theater during the Civil Rights Movement and beyond. Could you talk about what the Story Circle means to you in your work?
1: Yeah. You know, everything that I've done as an adult has been informed by the Story Circle. I've sat in so many Story Circles with John to watch him. The early days of my introduction to Roots We spent a lot of time in New Orleans. My brother and I, New Orleans became our second home. We would be in New Orleans three, four times a month. And most of that was to work with with John and Jumbug Productions, but also to work with students at the center and Kalamu Yasalam and Jim Randall's. This was before Hurricane Katrina. So a lot of people started organizing in New Orleans after the hurricane. We actually were there working for a few years before the hurricane came, and and some of the work that John was doing with Bob Moses, with Kalamu Yassalam, with a number of amazing activists and, and educators and artists in New Orleans were working in community, using the Story Circle as an organizing tool to bring together this triad in which he saw artists, organizers, and educators as being the three primary components to a community development framework
2: i am a storyteller <laughs> storyteller now i say storyteller instead a liar cause there's a heap of difference between a storyteller and a liar <laughs> a liar that's somebody taking cover things over <laughs> mainly for his own private benefit but storytelling that's somebody which you're taking uncover things so everybody can get some good out of it. Yeah, I am a storyteller. Keep a good meaning to be found in the story. You got the mind to hear.
0: That was John O'Neill as the legendary Junebug Jabbo Jones talking about the power of story. And here he is as himself on the power of the story circle.
2: I approach almost everything through the lens of story and storytelling because I find that what happens when you, when you get to telling stories and working through metaphor rather than argument, uh, people come to shared understanding more quickly. They start to going, oh, I, get, I understand that happened to me too. Let me tell you what happened to me. And then boom, boom, boom.
1: This is our orientation to understanding how this tool can be applied to being the centerpiece for change. And to see it in its working elements is this mastery of equity. That's what the circle does, is that it it balances every voice into a community chorus. It's, it doesn't allow for um, one person to dictate the conversation or to override the will of the community. You have to blend in. And if you're too loud, you got to tone it down. If you're too low, you got to step it up. It's that, it's a choir. And it's just a beautiful context for a democratic process. So for me, whenever my brother and I would be on the road and we would be entering into new spaces, we would begin by assembling the circle and start and end all conversations, all engagements, all in that space and unpacking what it means to be in circle. This is, this is an ancient ritual. This is a gift from the ancestors. This is who we are at our spirit and base level is sitting around a fire or sitting around a meal and as a community, understanding our relationship to each other and our place in the larger society. It's so fundamental that when you break out of that circle framework and, and get back into this master student, you know, teacher relationship, it doesn't feel safe. Uh, that's, there's no safety in that type of framework. It's what got King killed. It was this idea that he was the movement and everybody else was supporting him. No, he was one of the movement. But I think for us, we adopted that practice and it became just part of the way that we showed up, anywhere we show up. We use it here. We just, we do a circle with our staff every Tuesday and we circle up and we check in and we talk about everything. Everybody has an opportunity to share and we do that. And that's just the way that our staff knows that every voice is important, that everybody has a role to play. And when we come together, we can see the strength and the development of how we're all contributing to a much larger picture without losing the individual spirit and sound. So
0: I'd like to return to that talk in St. Louis in which you started and ended by talking about the power of love. You began by saying that learning to love ourselves is the greatest challenge to the evolution of the human animal. And then you shared a quote that Justice is what love looks like in public, which was...
1: Yeah, Cornell West.
0: And then you ended with a song that said, I know, love is what we need more of, I peace know. will surely follow
1: love. I know, yeah, the folks. <laughs> totally more love is what
0: peace will surely I follow love. Follow love. Whatever, Whatever the problem, problem
1: I, know I know we can solve, solve them. You know and I know. Love bit, y'all. Love 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 me y'all. We'll first give honor to Maurice Turner, my brother, who wrote that song. That's his writing and arrangement and production on that song. It has traveled. Whenever we leave this earth, if anybody remembers Mugabe, it will be because of that song.
0: So. Mugabe was your performing group with your brother,
1: right? And
0: Mugabe, M-U-G-A-B-E-E, stands for Men Under Guidance Acting Before Early Extinction. And that song was a signature of the group, right?
1: Yeah, and there's a story of of us singing that song at a protest at Fort Benning, Georgia, at the, at the, the, the military base there that trains the soldiers that involved in a lot of South American coups, of singing that song as train snipers pointed at the stage and about 20,000 peaceful protesters in the crowd singing that song with us. One of the most amazing moments of my life. And that was the
0: School of the Americas? The
1: School of the Americas, yeah. Both terrifying and full of an energy of love and groundedness that I that is very difficult to duplicate. But that song, my brother is, is a love machine. Like he's all about the spirit of love. I'm still learning what that looks like. But what I understand about it is we all understand love. Like love is a is a is a primary emotion that the more we get, the more we can reciprocate. And in that sense, when we don't have exposure to it it's difficult to have other things that function well emotionally in your life. Not just emotionally, but like everything. Love is a vibration. It's not just a word, it's it's not just an action. It's an actual vibration that changes the timber of things around it. When you're being loved, when someone is expressing love and just the opposite when there's an absence of love. And I think you go in many spaces you go into today An institution, they don't operate on a a vibration that carries love, and in fact, it repels love. So I think for me, when I think about love and practice, what I'm interested in in cultivating is a space that is endowed with that vibration and that is welcoming and attracting of that vibration so that when people come to this space, there's a feeling that you get when you open the doors, that feeling you get when you go to your grandma's house and there's a warm plate of biscuits on the table, and you can smell that fried chicken in the air and, and that, that candy yam that, you know, and you can smell it walking up to the house because it's a screen door and that love that she's practicing alchemy, she's mixing potions of love in her kitchen. And as those things flow out, they meet and, and in that meeting your home. And that happens no matter where you are. You can go to a home you've never been in, you can smell the love, you can feel the love as you walk up to the place when it is endowed with love. And you can also go places place and you be like, that vibe and it was just not right. And so I work to cultivate a vibe that is, is based in, in, in a love for oneself, in a love for others, and in, in love as a tool for advancement of the species. We, we won't see the year 3000, the direction that we're going. Because love is becoming scarce and more scarce and more scarce. And we have to figure out ways to infuse love back into our, our work, our spaces, our home, the schools, wherever we, we gather. It has to be a space that is about loving each other, loving humanity. And that word it just gets it gets overused and misused and, and misinterpreted so much that people connect it with a weakness and it's the exact opposite. It's solid. It's grounded in, in, in infinity. Love is, has an infinite power to it that is stronger than any other emotion. And when we can tap into it and hold on to it, it changes our uh, trajectory and our vibrational approach. So we, that's what we're working on. It's hard.
0: I think one of the stories out there that disturbs me most is that love is just somehow out there floating like a low-hanging cloud waiting for someone to walk into it and be blessed, you know, with no effort at all. Like you said, it's hard work. Lust is easy. Love doesn't come without
1: effort. Rarely ever,
0: yeah. So hopefully, as we emerge from the COVID clouds, what's next for SIP culture? What inspiring things do you have to share?
1: Yes. So what's on the horizon for us is we've got a community impact artist that we're working with, artist named Christina McPheel, and she's our visual artist that's working in our community with us for the next year. She was just with us for three weeks. She left last Saturday and she'll be coming back uh, working in a a pop-up workshop that we've established on Main Street. We also got a a gaggle of of artists that will be coming through in residence with us throughout the, the rest of 2022. In fact, we've got two artists that will be showing up on Sunday, and they are Annette Hollowell of uh, Waterford, Mississippi, who has uh, a family farm there called Foxfire Ranch that does blues Sundays. They've had the family land for over 100 years, and they do these Hill Country Blues events every Sunday from, from March to November. And Annette will be here and Annette's partner in this artistic endeavor, Free For All, whose artist a musician, a composer, they have a project called We Are the Promised Land. It is not yet out, but it details this history of this land of Foxfire Ranch and this multiple generations and the stories of the artistic practice that they engage in there and how Hill Country Blues identifies and personifies the region. It is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. And I'm not just saying that because we're a co-commissioner, but it is absolutely amazing. It reeks of Mississippi and I say that with all the beauty that Mississippi possesses artistically.
0: So what was that name again for folks to give a listen?
1: So we are the promised land.
0: We'll be sure to post that in our show notes as soon as it becomes
1: available. Yeah, so they're still finishing up the first episode, but their residency with us is to map out um, the production schedule, I think, for the next three or four um, podcasts. So anyway, th- that, that work is inspiring me. I think also the work of Liana Ambrose Murray, who goes by the name Ambrose, and they are a visual artist from Asheville, North Carolina. They are visual artists, but they've been doing this amazing pieces in textile Print on silk and different fabrics. Beautiful work. And you can find her work by searching Liana Ambrose-Murray, A-M-B-R-O-S-E. They just had a couple of shows in New York and in Miami and getting ready for some other big endeavors, but her work is remarkable. And the work of Charmaine Minifield, who's in Atlanta, who's been recreating these praise houses as site-specific works, really dealing with the ancestral legacy of faith and, and ring shouts in the Black community. These are all just amazing artists that I'm just enamored with and and want to continue to see their work grow.
0: It sounds like you're really going full bore. What challenges and opportunities do you see ahead for SIP culture?
1: You know, we're five years in. We came with a lot of support in the vision from outside. We're still building support from the inside, and I think that's going to be the harder and the more long trajectory work. We had a a community member show up yesterday and challenge us in really good ways about what does community mean in your service? Like You know, these questions about where do I fit in? Where's the place for me in this work? And I I look at that as those accountability measures. If we don't have that, if we don't have people holding us to our word, to our mission, to what we say we are, then one, people don't care. And then two is you can drift off and think that you're doing the work, but the people that you're working with don't see you as such. So I was really thankful for that visit yesterday. And those are just the things that I think we're, you know, COVID, we are a community that builds itself like many small rural communities on physical connection. Like you need to be in my space. I need to see you sit on my front porch. We need to talk. I need to be able to put my hand on you. And that's the way that relationships are built. That's the currency of our community. And COVID took that away from us for two years and our community's health and wellness has, has suffered beyond just the sickness of COVID, but into, how not having touch has, has, has complicated the development of relationships in our community. And so that's the stuff that we're working on this year.
0: I suppose the good news is that you are in the human connection business. That's your story. It's, it's pretty much what you know. That's right. Well, something I know for sure is that this was a wonderful hour we just spent. and Thank you so much, Carlton, for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to our listeners out there across the U.S. and the U.K. and India, Singapore, Canada, Cambodia, Costa Rica, New Zealand, Serbia and South Africa and the rest of the world with your big ears, your big hearts and your thoughtful comments. This show is a labor of love and we love that you're out there listening and hopefully learning and being inspired. And speaking of learning, for those of you who are teaching or doing research or just trying to absorb as much as you can about art and community change, we want to remind you about our new Change the Story collection. This collection is our response to listeners who told us they'd like to dig deeper into art and change episodes that focus on specific issues, constituencies, or disciplines, like justice arts, cultural organizing, change theater, children and youth, or music. If this interests you, please check it out at www.artandcommunity.com under the podcast drop-down or click the link in our show notes. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland, and our theme and soundscape are by the stupendous Judy Munson. Our editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.com. And our inspiration rises up from the mysterious but ever-present presence of OOP 235. Until next time, please stay well, do good, and spread the good word.